Welcome to the Get More Success Show. He's a guy who never measured a man's success by the size of his wife. It's showtime. 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 And now, here is your host, Warwick Mary. Welcome back to another episode of the Get More Success Show. I'm your host, Warwick Mary. Now, today, I have... Look, legend's a strong word, and I'm not going to use it, but we have a man who's uh, who's... He's unbelievable in the way he's able to pick business trends and be able to surf the trend and be able to see what's coming into the future. Well, not actually a business futurist per se. He actually is a bit of a business futurist. So would you please welcome to the show, Mr. Michael McQueen. Welcome. Thank you so much. Good to be here. Hey, um, now I'm going to start with the same question I ask everybody I start with, and that is how do you define success from someone who's started off teaching in the education space. You've had over five different best-selling books. You've got a whole lot of different products and services out there. You speak around the world and you do some amazing stuff. I'm very interested as to how do you define success? Uh, I reckon probably the word I would use to describe that would be the word flourishing. You know, I feel like if I'm flourishing, which is doing the stuff I was made to do, using the skills that I've got, doing something that's worthwhile and helpful and helping others flourish, that's pretty much, that'd be close to the word I would use to describe success. And part of that is financial. Part of that's the pragmatic stuff of providing for your family and seeing your family flourish. But some of it too, particularly in our line of work, is about you know challenging, challenging yourself and your ideas and always carving out new territory and, and flourishing professionally too. So um, yeah, probably that would be the word I would use to describe success. Excellent. That's a great, that's a great, a great word, flourish. Um, so, so, well, let's talk about your uncanny build to flourish. You've just got a new book coming out called How to Prepare, for, uh, How to Prepare Now for What's Next. Yeah. Before we talk about that, I want to I just talk about some of your previous books, Winning the Battle for Relevance, Momentum. Um, you had uh, uh, the rule, new rules of engagement. So they seem to be right on the business trends. And, and you and I both know to write a book, you don't just go, oh, I'm going to whip out a book. And a week later, there it is. It takes a lot of time. But your books seem to be released like right at the peak of the wave of interest on that topic. How do you do that? Well, um, I guess the thing is sometimes it's a risk. And I've had a couple of times with what, what you don't see, the books that don't make it to the shelves, you know, the books that are sitting on my computer right now in a folder half written. And they're the books that you, you go with your gut. You think, I think this, this is a winner. Um, but as you go along, the content doesn't quite click. Um, as you describe what you're writing, because, of course, the question once you've written a few books is, what are you writing now? What's coming next? What's the next book for you? And when you start to describe it and you get the, um, the blank looks or the, um, the polite, like, oh, how interesting. That's, wow. That's nice. <laughs> um, that's, that's a pretty, indi- pretty good indication you're not on a winner. So there's a couple of those. I've had a few books I only half wrote. What I did do is pivot the, uh, the books that weren't working into books that did. It was a case of fine-tuning fine- fine- the message. But, like, for instance, I've got a book I started writing nine, ten years ago now on how to leave a legacy, which in itself is an interesting book for someone to write. Well, like I started writing that when I was 26, 27. I'd been the recipient of a lot of great legacies and I was seeing that the people who were at that later stage of their career that were doing well and and not just succeeding financially but in every area of life were focused on the legacy they were going to leave. That sort of gave perspective to everything they were doing in the present. So that's a really interesting topic. That's a great theme. But that's not a topic that people book you to speak on necessarily. It's a difficult topic to pitch. So I started that book and I may well write it when I'm in my 60s. Who knows? But yeah, yeah. I'll come back and finish it. But there are books that haven't worked. Um, the ones that do work, I think the biggest thing I do is listen. I listen a lot to clients, to audience members. Um, and often when you keep hearing the same questions time and time again, the same recurring themes, you think, okay, there's a need here that's not being met. 
and maybe think, well, in the moment you, you think that, you think, well, there's seven books on that topic already, but for some reason your market hasn't identified that those books answer the question the way they want it answered. Right. So you think, okay, what's the space I can own here? For instance, when you look at the book on Momentum, a lot of that is about peak productivity and high-performance cultures and time management and focus and clarity and all that sort of stuff. I mean, there's a million books on all those different topics, but I came at it from a different angle, position around the whole thing of how to build momentum that sticks. How do you make sure you stay in a groove and don't let that groove become a rut? And that was interesting. And so even though it was, it seemed fresh and exciting and on trend, the reality was I took a lot of other things that were out there and, and, and brought a different message to a topic that was perennial, um, but it, I think solved a problem for the market in the way that they identified or recognized as a solution rather than, you know, in many cases, the books that didn't really hit the nail on the head. So that's, that's probably part of it is just listening to what the, customer, what the market's asking for. But there also is a gut feel and, and an intuition thing. Yeah. The, the winning the battle for, the, for relevance was the book that was the most significant one for me because it transitioned my focus away from demographic, generational, mainly with the schools and education space to working with corporates. And um, I remember the first conversation I had with Dave Stoughton, who you and I both know really well, and um, he'll tell you the same thing. We were catching up at, I can't remember which hotel it was now, one of the Crown, I think Crown Promenade in Melbourne. And um, I said, this is a book I'm thinking of writing on relevance. And he said, ah, oh. he said, you know, I've been working with the bureaus for the last 12 months. I know what people are booking. I know the topics they want. And I've got to tell you, no one's asking for relevance. And I thought, oh, is that a signal I should quit? And I thought, no, I gut, gut feel, I reckon I'm onto something. I think this will work as a topic, as a word, as a brand. And so I just pushed forward, wrote the book, and it was funny. I remember speaking to him six months after the book came out. He said, my gosh, you picked it. He said, that is now the most asked for thing. I'm like, well, this is the challenge. You've got to also be discerning as to what feedback and, and advice you listen to. In that case, I didn't listen to that advice, and I'm glad I didn't. So yeah, yeah. a bit of gut feel as well. So uh, usually your books are very well researched and, and yes, you listen to your clients, et cetera, but what other sources of, of research do you look, look for? Um, so I try and gather basically the best thinking on whatever topic I'm, I'm looking at. So for, I mean, I'll reach for them now if you like. So I'm going to start working on a book in the next few days um, for the education market again. So what I've done is jumped onto Amazon and this is just from the last probably two or three weeks. So I've just ordered this bunch of books that are all the best leading thinking right now on educational trends and how do we prepare students for the future and all that sort of stuff. So I'll do a literary review and I'll read everything out there on it. So I'll probably plow through a book, maybe two books a week for the next, I don't know, 12 weeks, maybe even more. Um, if I'm on a long flight, I'll try and plow through a whole one on a flight to America or something. Um, and then I'll, I'll su- supplement that with um, articles from Wall Street Journal's a big one, Fast Company, Forbes magazine. For this one, because it's education focused, I'll probably tap into some of the education journals more so. Um, but I will read a stack before I start writing. In terms right. of the writing process, 80%, maybe probably 70% of the time is spent researching. The last 30% is the writing time. I'm researching and, and chunking your ideas down into some sort of organized flow of, of information in the manuscript. That's the hardest bit. And then it's the writing stuff, which is actually sort of fun at the end. So I do, you're right, I do a stack of research. And I learned that the first book, the first edition of the first book I wrote, I look back at it and it's a shocker. It's got no end notes. It's got no references. I'm like, I can't believe I wrote something so intellectually shallow and disorganized. Um, but I did. And it sold and it was great. And I started there and I learned. And now my, my reference list, like I think for the last book that came out a few months back, the preparing now for what's next book, I think I've got like 580 research references in it. So it's, wow. it's a lot. So particularly when you're writing about business trends and you're calling out businesses that haven't done things well, you're going to want to be prepared because, I mean, if you're talking about a brand that's made mistakes that hasn't kept up with the trends that as a result has filed for bankruptcy or has lost sales momentum, 
you better have data to back that up because that's um, that's not something you say lightly about a business or a brand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Especially in our litigious society, you want to make, <laughs> want to make sure you're covered. That's true. Absolutely. So uh, let's talk about how to prepare now for what's next. Um, and the, the subtitle of the book is A Guide to Thriving in an Age of Disruption. Disruption is a, is a, a terminology that's been used heavily at the moment. Yep. But essentially what we're talking about is how do we stay ahead of the game? How do we, how do we look at where our, our, our major competitors are coming from? Correct, so yes. what, what, are, what are some of the things that we can do to prepare now for what's next? I think the big thing, I mean, the focus of the book really is what is the mindset, what is the culture, the habits required to be future ready or future proof. Um, and so half the book is looking at what the future is going to hold. I mean, as, as the title indicates, it's a double barrel book. Half of it is the preparing now piece. The other half is what's next. So half the book is what's the next stuff. You know, what are the key trends or disruption that you you ignore at your own peril in the coming 10 years. So some really interesting stuff in there on robotics and artificial intelligence and nanotechnology and demographic change and economic forecasting and some really interesting stuff in there. And, and honestly, it was the most interesting book I've ever written because it was just like when you're reading about smart dust, which are nanoparticles you can inject into someone's body that identify cancerous cells to neutralize those cancerous cells this is what's being researched in the world in the field of nanotechnology right now it's fascinating like it's incredible what an, what an amazing time to be alive like I, I gave this book to my 93 year old grandmother last week and she's she started reading it she was talking to her a day or so ago and she said i don't understand half of it and i'm glad i won't be around for a lot of it but it is really interesting like what an amazing time to be alive so and that's that's half the book but the, the more important half i think really is not just identifying the trends a lot of people are doing that um, it's not just crystal ball gazing. It's really looking at what does this stuff mean for you and how do you gear up. So, for instance, I'll talk about the importance of empathy. You know, empathy is probably, I think, the most overlooked skill in innovation. If you can empathise with your marketplace, particularly as that marketplace continues to change, that's how you serve them well. And yet we're so big on creativity and lateral thinking, and that's all very good. But I think from an, from an innovation standpoint, empathy is the most important thing. So going with that is how do, you identify, how do you identify the points of friction for your marketplace? Because if you don't, there'll be a disruptor who will. Yeah. There'll be a new technology startup come in and go, we can solve the problem for your customers. And suddenly you as the incumbent are on the back foot. Um, so yeah, the, the friction you choose to ignore um, is the stuff that leaves you vulnerable to being disrupted. So you know, things like building empathy, the, the important postures um, for being ready for the future, the postures of humility and hunger. And the moment you lose those things, the moment you, you think you've made it, you've passed it, is the old saying, and it's so true. So for any business or brand, how do you stay humble? How do you stay open to new ways, new, new strategies? Just because it worked last year doesn't mean it's going to work this year or next year, and yet we often fall into that trap. So, I mean, it, there's a lot of stuff in there about the culture of businesses that adapt, that are agile, the mindsets, the paradigms, and it's just been interesting to see how clients are already using it and it's been really encouraging just to see this stuff actually work already, even in the few months since it's been out for clients. It's really interesting, like you're talking about, you know, what's what's coming next and the technology of it, yeah. yet in your conversation around what you'd have to do now, it's always very emotive. Like it's really not about technology. It's all yeah. about the what's the the ethos or the culture or the the moral standards of the organisation. It's not about what technology you're using. Well, I think that's the thing is in the, in the years to come, particularly in the age of AI, um, the stuff that's going to make us most useful and valuable to our clients and to our employers and in our businesses is the high touch stuff. You know, it's the, it's the personal stuff we're bringing to it. As human beings, our capacity to care, to be empathetic, to, um, to apply judgment. That's the stuff that 
algorithms don't do well, if at all. Um, and so, you know, from a, a lot of the focus of the book is, you know, what are the things you need to get ready for the future? And it's not just about learning how to code. You know, it's not just about employing the latest technology. It's often about the mindset required. And I think that's the piece that's overlooked because um, a lot of the future of stuff out there is written by techies, people who love technology. And I'm not a techie. Like, a, you could see my setup right now. I mean, it's, I am, I'm using like an old iPhone. I have no desire to upgrade it because it works. You know, like I... I'm not the guy who's out there on the bleeding edge of, you know, new technology. I use it. I use it as a tool, but I'm far more interested in the mentality, the mindset, the principles for staying, staying, I guess, ready for the future. And that's the stuff that spins my wheels. And you know what I find for clients, that's what they want to hear as well. That's what's the most useful. Yeah. Because you can get anyone to come and speak about the rapid fire technology. You know, you need to use this and this and this and this. This is what's coming. And at the end of it, you can often feel very overwhelmed by that. My message is hopefully one that's empowering and encouraging honest really candid like you can't get complacent you can't get stuck you've got to be ready you've got to be that's the thing a lot of businesses talk about oh that's in the future so they actually don't even worry about it because it's in the future it's not it's not anything i need to worry about yet what you're saying is you've actually got to act now for a future that is not that distance because if you don't you'll be out of business before you know it Correct. So, you know, like one of the chapters in the book, one of the strategy chapters is to dig the well before you get thirsty. In other words, you need to reinvent yourself before the change hits. If you wait until the change hits, you're on the back foot. You're in survival mode, not strategic mode anymore. And so the importance of, of preempting change rather than waiting until it hits. And yet so often we will stick with what works, what, what's working because it's safe and it's proven, it's reliable. You know, don't, don't mess with success. And yet the reality is if you want to stay one step ahead of change, you need to break your business before it's broken. Right. And that's, that's, a bit of that, that's a bit of that arrogance that, like you are talking about before. Like, oh, we do this and we're the best at it. And, and it's like, well, great, but the new boys don't care. Correct. I mean, and, and some of the principles in the book are not, I mean, they're not new in a way, like they're, they're timeless stuff. I mean, I love the insight from Jack Welch, the former CEO of GE, and he said the moment the rate of change outside a business exceeds the rate of change inside that business, the end is near. Yeah. And that's a quote he uttered, I don't know, 18, 19 years ago, and yet it's more true now than ever. I mean, the conclusion to the book and the closing page is actually, quote, um, Lao Tzu, the great iconic Chinese philosopher, you know, said resisting change is like trying to hold your breath. Even if you're successful, it's not going to end well. You know, and I think that's such a useful principle. It's not new, um, but it's so true. And I guess that's what I love bringing you, stuff that is fresh um, to the marketplace. And I guess, you know, going to the question before of how do I pick topics, I think if I were to offer two words to listeners or viewers now and how do you try and identify what your place in the market is, particularly if you're a thought leader, an expert, a writer, a speaker, the two words I often give to um, other speakers who ask that question is you've got to be fresh but familiar. Yeah. You've got, to, you've got to give the market something that is sort of familiar to them. Like they need to know what category to put you in. And if you come to the market and say, I'm an expert on, and you aim something that is you know, really high-level psychology stuff, and they're like, well, I don't even know what that means. Like you're not, you're not going to get cut through with the marketplace because they're, when they're looking to book a speaker, for instance, they're not, that's not on their radar or something they need to be worried about. When they go into a bookstore, they're not looking for how do I want to find a book on such and such because they don't even know that term or that category of knowledge exists. So it's got to be familiar, but it's got to be fresh. Yeah. Right? Not another book on time management, not another book on change management. Oh, you've got to have something far more nuanced and interesting. Like, I love some of the books on, on resilience in the last few years. One of the best ones was one called Grit. Like, great. Grit, as a term, is familiar. We know the word, but yeah. it's it's not resilience, it's grit. It's got something evocative, emotive to it. 
that it is. I think it passes those two tests, fresh but familiar. So that would be my encouragement. That's what I've always tried to do as well when I'm crafting keynote topics and book titles as well. Right. Hey, so for anyone who's listening at the moment and um, they're interested in uh, how to prepare now for what's next, but they're just thinking, what's a couple of things that I can do in my business regardless of the size of the business? What would be a couple of key things that you would, that you would recommend that businesses need to do to help get ready for the future that's knocking on their door? Yeah, the first one would be, I mean, going to some of the things we touched about before, focus on friction. You know, what are the, what are the things right now causing frustration, disappointment, confusion, complexity um, for your marketplace or for your clients? That is one of the most important starting places if you're going to stay one step ahead of change. Um, you also need to ask questions like, what are we doing that may have worked in the past that doesn't just need to be tweaked, it actually needs to be fundamentally rethought? You know, the um, analogy I use in the book at some points is don't pave the cattle track. In other words, the cattle track, this idea of an old, an, an old path that may have served a purpose years ago, decades ago, and by just paving it, by just putting something new over the top of something old and dated and irrelevant, you don't actually innovate. You just in fact, you often solidify something old and dysfunctional. And so the question is, um, what, what needs a fundamental rethink in your business, not just a superficial retread? And, and that's such an important question. I think I've been looking at that for you know, the speaking industry, you know, as a profession, one of the things we need to fundamentally rethink the assumptions we've held for a long time that may no longer be true in the years to come. And that's tough. It's challenging, but it's, it's, it's so important. Um, my other encouragement is get a bit ballsy, get a bit bold, take some risks, do some stuff that is outside your comfort zone. Um, and that's hard for all of us. And we know the rhetoric of fail fast and fail frequently, um, and yet many of us don't do it. Mm. And yet a lot, and what I'm seeing in most of my clients right now is the ones who are doing well, create a culture where failure is embraced and encouraged. And not stupid failure, not like, hey, let's just take a risk and see what happens, like deliberate, intentional innovations that you don't know how they'll work out. Your gut feel is they'll be right, but if they're not, the culture supports people who make who take risks and experience failure. So those would be the most important things from a cultural business perspective, regardless of the size of your organisation. Right. Who are a couple of companies that you might have worked with or you know of who are doing this well? One of my favourites is Dyson. I was doing some work with Dyson a few months ago, and they're an interesting business. So, like, even you look at, like, James Dyson to create the bagless cyclonic back vacuum cleaner. It was something like 1,400 and something experiments, failures to get to that, that final winning product. So, in terms of a culture of failure, that's just been part of their DNA for a lot of years. And, and also, what's interesting about them as a case study, and I think there's something in this, is James Dyson, to some extent, ignored the data. You know, they did focus group research, market research, and said, you know, what do you want in a new vacuum cleaner? If we were to design a vacuum cleaner from scratch, what would it look like? And one of the things that he said is, I reckon it'd be really good to build a vacuum cleaner with a clear cylinder so people could see what they'd vacuumed up. And all the focus groups said, no, nah, don't do it. People don't want to see what they are vacuumed out of their floor. And he, he went with his gut and he said, no, I think this is going to work. I think this is going to be a good innovation. And so they did. And you'll notice that now every, pretty much every competitor out there has a clear Sighting a cylinder for their vacuum cleaners. And so that was that, you know, rely on data. Data is useful. It's valuable. But at the same time, don't, 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 don't ignore that intuitive sense of what you think is the right move because sometimes you've got to go with that gut and you've got to respond quickly and not wait till all the data is in until you've got absolute certainty. Um, the good thing about Dyson too is they've, they've kept that culture over the years. So, for instance, you know, if you look six years ago for Dyson, 90% of the revenue was coming from the big form stand-up vacuum cleaners. Today, um, I think it's somewhere around 40% comes from those. The vast bulk of it comes from their cordless stick vacuum cleaners. They essentially cannibalized their own business. They bought out a product that destroyed the revenue 
of their existing one. That's a, that's, that's a ballsy move, yeah. but it was a necessary move because that market was getting flooded. They had to go somewhere new and own a new marketplace. So that whole dig the ball before you get thirsty, they're a great example of a brand that did that. And yeah, they also that that you know keeping failure as a part of the culture. Great story from Dyson that I heard when I was working with them is that um, they have an award each year they give to a staff member who's tried something but it's fallen over, it's failed. And they actually get an award for that. One of them that won it a few years ago is a woman who suggested when they stick vacuum the, the cordless vacuum cleaners came out. Why do we do a deal? with all of the service department groups around the country. And so we install them in every service department so people get a chance to use it while they're on holidays and get a feel for it and go, gosh, when I come home, I've got to get myself one of these. So I spent a lot of money getting these in all these service departments and no one used them because who vacuums on holidays? No one does. <laughs> and so, I mean, it was a really well-intentioned innovation, a great idea, great initiative, but it didn't work. And yeah. she won the award that year the Dyson Spirit Award because, you know, she did the stuff that was required to be innovative even though it didn't work. And so I think they're a really good example, I think often an unsung hero of it in the business world right now. Fantastic. Michael, that's just great. Look, thank you so much for your time today. If okay. people want to find out more about the book or get a copy of it, what's the best way to do that or, or to get in touch with you? Yeah, it's in store. So check out your bookstore. Um, if you've got one that's still open near you, um, support them. Um, but if not, so my website's michaelmcqueen.net. So people go there, they'll find stuff on me, video clips, all that jazz. And then also there's a, ch- a chance to order the book online there as well. Fantastic. michaelmcqueen.net. Michael, thank you so much for your time today. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to another episode of the Get More Success Show with your host, Warwick Mary. I look forward to your company next time. Thanks for listening to the Get More Success Show with Warwick Mary. Continue the conversation with other successful people over at getmoresuccess.com. That's where you'll find all the show notes as well as a link to our Facebook group that we'd love for you to join. GetMoreSuccess.com is also where you'll find all the information you need to connect with me, your host, Warwick Merry. Thanks for listening, and until next time, enjoy your success.